The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today and thrilled to death to have our guest. Uh, today's guest is Marion Nestle. And besides being one of the premier foodies and uh, food experts in the country, she's also a professor at NYU and quite an expert on nutrition, food production, a number of different topics that we're going to be talking about today. She's got a brand new book out, and that's going to kind of serve as the foundation for the topics that we'll cover today. Her new book is called Eat, Drink, Vote, uh, a, an illustrated guide to food politics. Marion, welcome to Go Green Radio. Glad to be here, and it's Nestle, not Nestle. No relation to the multinational <laughs> food company, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I apologize. Thank you so much for, for setting me straight there. Um, before we dive into some of the topics that are outlined in your book, I'd like for you to talk about the inclusion of the cartoons in your book, because that made it really fun to read. You've got uh, some of the most uh, famous and, and award-winning cartoonists who are represented in your book, and it literally made the book a page-turner because every single page had a really great cartoon that was illustrating uh, one of the points that you made. But I'd like for you to talk about why you decided to include the cartoonist group and, and why you decided to format the book in that way. Well, it fell into my lap, if the truth be known. Um, in my previous book, Why Calories Count, which is a serious book about food energy and obesity and all of those things, hopefully written in a way that people can actually understand, I had some cartoons in there. And you can't just put cartoons that you find into books. You have to get permission from the copyright holders. And in the course of negotiating how much I was going to get charged for using those cartoons and why calories count, um, I had conversations with Sarah Thaves, who's the owner of the cartoon group, the cartoonist group, um, and she said, you know, I've just always wanted to do a book using our cartoonist's work on food and food politics. And I thought, oh, me too. And there it was. We had a collaboration. She's got the cartoons. Uh, she sent me 1,100 of them, which <laughs> I still can't get over. I had them lined from one end of my living room to the other, trying to figure out what to do with them. Um, and I ended up putting them in piles and writing the text around them. The book wrote itself. It was so much fun and so easy to do. Well, and it's so fun to read. I highly recommend it. I mean, even if you're a neophyte in in terms of food issues and understanding what's going on with food in our country, you've developed a, a way of, of writing and then including the cartoons in such a way that 
you know, even students, I think, uh, at different grade levels could get a lot out of this book and really enjoy it. Well, I've been told that, I've been told that college students are going to be using it in classes. Oh, that's great. Well, I think they'll really enjoy it. The cartoons are, are, well, you can't put it down. That's what I found that I just couldn't put the book down. You know, I think that a lot of Americans go to the supermarket every week and they see a virtual warehouse full of food choices. And I think that's because, uh, you know, we've got these gigantic food enterprises that are bringing all these food choices to us. And when we go into a place like that and see all of this food, it's really hard for the everyday American to believe there's a problem with our food production system and with our food system in general. How do you convince the everyday American otherwise, that there are problems with our food production system. Well, I don't try to convince. I just try to state the facts. And one of the things that I was, I have a book, why, um, What to Eat, that deals with the whole supermarket problem. But in the cartoon book, I let the cartoons speak for themselves. Um, I didn't argue with the cartoons. I didn't write captions under every cartoon. I just figured that readers could read the cartoons and figure it out for themselves. Um, so this isn't about convincing. It's about letting people make up their own minds. Mm-hmm. You know, when you talk about food as a political issue, I think it's kind of tough for a lot of people to swallow that. Politics has become one of the dirtiest words in America these days. And I know that for a lot of people that I run into every day, you know, on the soccer field or, you know, around my kids' school, they can hardly say the word politics without turning up their nose and grimacing. Whereas food, on the other hand, you know, we often think of as bringing joy and contentment and celebration into our lives. You know, when you speak to everyday Americans about the fact that food is political, how does that resonate? How how do you bridge those two very different topics in the average American's mind and help people understand that there there are so many political issues involved in the food choices that we have available? Well, I, it's actually very easy to do. The two most important nutrition problems in the world are not having enough food and having too much food. And so right away, politics come into that because we have food systems that don't provide enough people, food to some people and do provide so much food that people are gaining weight and becoming obese and getting sick as a result. Also, food is a trillion-dollar-a-year business, and food is very overproduced in the United States, meaning that there's far more food than the country needs, and therefore food needs to be sold and food companies have to sell it. And so we're right smack in the business pages of the newspaper, and that's where the politics are. And how do the the interests, the business interests um, that are involved with food infiltrate the political system? Tell us some of the forms that it takes. I mean, first thing that comes to mind is maybe the farm bill that we have to pass every so often. But what other ways do we see um, political forces acting on behalf of the interests of the food industry? Well, here, too, it's, it's not very complicated. Um, the rules for preventing obesity are to eat less, eat better, and move more. Uh, eating less is really, really bad for business, and business interests will do everything that they can to make sure that no government agency and no health professional organization ever says anything negative about their product. So they're in Washington lobbying. 
They're giving money to election campaigns to elect uh, representatives who will not criticize their interests or do anything that's going to increase their costs or decrease their profits. Um, and they are enormously philanthropic and giving to organizations, uh, buying silence and making friends and influencing people in the way that any kind of political entity does. Food companies are no different than any other kind of company. And, in fact, the common analogy now is cigarette companies. It's not that food is cigarettes. It's not going to kill you. Um, and, in fact, you need it to live. But it's that food companies operate in exactly the same way that cigarette companies operate. Well, you know, you said something very interesting there, buying silence. Can you give us an example of of that kind of a situation playing out in real life? Sure. I'm writing, I, I guess the easiest example that leaps to mind is New York City's attempt to put a 16-ounce cap on sodas. Um, mm-hmm. This was Mayor Bloomberg's attempt to do it. It was widely criticized, and among the most severe critics were representatives of um, minority groups who are uh, and low-income groups who are, are people who have the highest levels of obesity-related illnesses uh, in the city. And there was a lot of newspaper press about how the soda industry has systematically over the years targeted its marketing, advertising, and philanthropy to low-income minority groups. Um, And in a sense, they bought cooperation and bought silence from uh, from groups that would otherwise be critical. They also fund a lot of health professional organizations like uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics or the American Academy of Family Physicians um, or um, give money to hospitals and grants to hospitals and that, that sort of thing. And the soda companies in particular are extraordinarily generous and widespread in how they spend the, the spread the money around. Mm-hmm. Um, so that when it comes time to looking at something like this, uh, people either won't say anything or they'll criticize it and come on board with uh, corporate interests. You know, you raise a really interesting point about the um, involvement of the American Pediatrics Association and doctors. You know, on past episodes of Go Green Radio, we've talked about various foods and their impact on human health, but it was kind of in the context of trying to glean that kind of information um, from our doctors and pediatricians and, and sometimes the frustration in thinking that our healthcare professionals are also going to be the resident experts on how food impacts our health. Do you think that doctors in the U.S. receive enough training on nutrition in medical school, or do you think we should be doing a better job of helping our health care providers become those go-to experts for the everyday American on how food impacts our health? Yeah, I taught at a medical school in the late 1970s and early 1980s, um, and I ran a nutrition program at a, at a medical school in San Francisco, um, and there was very, very little nutrition education when I came, and when I left, it disappeared, um, and there now been, I think, at least 50 years of attempting, of attempts to get medicine to teach more about nutrition. They don't, they can't, and they aren't going to unless we have big changes in our healthcare system where prevention is more emphasized than treatment. 
So this is wow. an old issue. No, they don't know a thing about nutrition. And that means that the pa- that patients and normal run-of-the-mill average consumers get their information from whatever sources are available, many of them from the food industry. Well, and that's the thing that's really unsettling. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, I didn't think about what to eat. The answer was whatever my mom put in front of me. But when I became a mom, um, I know that this was something that, you know, when, especially when you're a new mom and if you happen to be on the younger end of the scale, you are so reliant upon the pediatrician for everything that will impact the health of your child. And, and I found it really frustrating that I had to go to, you know, multiple sources, to, and, and I found conflicting information about what constitutes a healthy diet for my family. You know, in speaking to our listeners, what do you advise, Marion, for people to find the best information if they can't go to their pediatricians or their doctors? Oh, I love that question. I'm always tempted to answer me, of course. Um, <laughs> I think that might be the very best answer, actually. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what to say. I, I mean, it's I think nutrition is really very simple. Um, you eat, you eat, you balance calories, you eat plenty of fruits and vegetables, you don't eat too much junk food, and that's really all you have to do. Uh, it's not any more complicated than that. If nutrition in, information seems conflicting and confusing, which it absolutely is, it's because there are so many vested interests in trying to get people to eat one kind of food or another. This miracle food will um, solve your life, and this miracle diet will solve all of your problems. It's not that easy. Um, nutrition is very complicated. There are lots of ways of eating that are very helpful and very enjoyable. And, you know, if I could do one thing, it would say, read my book, What to Eat, mm-hmm. and relax and enjoy it and enjoy your food. It's one of life's greatest pleasures. Well, it is. And, and I consider your book, What to Eat, right up there on my bookshelf with you know the the those pillar books of my life like what to expect when you're expecting and and you know some of the other quote unquote bibles for various aspects of my life as a mom and my life as you know a consumer and and really what to eat is one of those staple books um and so you know give us you know a couple of of tidbits from that book that might help some of our listeners start steering themselves in the right direction? Well, just what I said. I mean, basically, eat less, eat better, uh, move less, and don't eat too much junk food. I mean, that's the basic message of the book that goes all the way through it with lots of details about different... I, I use supermarkets as an organizing device for that book. But a lot of the same information is in... Um, the is in Eat, Drink, Vote. Eat, Drink, Vote is kind of a summary of everything I've ever written in a very short form, illustrated with 250 cartoons, most of them in color. Um, I mean, I couldn't believe the production job on that book. I thought it was beautiful. It, it really is. Um, it, it really, really is. I think one of the things that's kind of confusing for a lot of folks is that, uh, you know, in recent years, the vegetarian movement and the vegan movement um, have 
have brought a lot of other issues, it, it, environmental issues, to our plates, and that's made it um, even more confusing, I think, a little bit in how to be a responsible food consumer. But I think we're getting there. I think that some of these issues are beginning to coalesce. Some of the groups um, that that represent these various ideas are, are beginning to coalesce a little bit more into a more congealed food movement, and that's a great thing. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, much, much more with Marion Nessel and her book, Eat, Drink, Vote, an illustrated guide to food politics. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Glad that you could join us today. Our guest, if you're just tuning in, is Marion Nessel. She is a world-renowned expert on on nutrition and all matters of how food impacts our health and the politics involved in food and food production. And uh, she's got a brand new book out, and I love it. It's called Eat, Drink, Vote, an Illustrated Guide to Food Politics. Pick it up. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, very easy to find, and it's it's a page turner. You just can't put it down. It's it got a bunch of great cartoons from some of the most famous cartoonists that you've uh, seen in local newspapers and in national newspapers, and um, and and it complements the points that she makes beautifully. It's really fun to read, and I learned a lot that I hadn't previously considered. You know, Marion, while there seems to be 
you know, a real recent wave of interest in eating organic food and locally grown food in order to achieve better health and also a feeling of being green with our food choices. I think the fact remains that the majority of food produced in the U.S. comes from huge operations that, that tend to pollute the environment quite a bit. And while some of the food that they produce might be perfectly healthy, do you think that the overall net effect of factory farming is so unhealthy for America when we take it into account, we take into account the pollution that's produced um, versus the, the nutrition that's produced? Are we looking at a net unhealthy situation? Well, it depends on who you're looking at. I know plenty of industrial farmers who take every possible effort to reduce their impact on the environment, to keep their animals um, clean and healthy, um, to keep their plants, oh, n- while not organic, as uh, free of pesticides as possible. It's perfectly possible to do it better than we're doing it now, and I think we need to do it better than we're doing it now. Anybody who lives near a uh, uh, concentrated pig feeding operation will tell you that we need to do it better. Now you can smell them from miles away. Mm -hmm. Well, and what is the role of government in your mind um, in in regulating those issues? I mean, um, how far should the government go in uh, you know, regulating what private industry or private farmers do on their premises. Well, if they're polluting water sources uh, and soil that's going to uh, contaminate other people's property, obviously the government has a role in setting some limits. We actually have environmental laws on the books that uh, cover a lot of these issues, but they're not enforced. So the question really needs to be, what do we have to do to get the government to enforce existing laws that were passed by Congress? Um, I was on the Pew Commission on Industrial Farm Animal Production a few years ago, and that was the major conclusion of our report, was enforce the existing laws. Uh, the... Um, the government does have a role, and the because the businesses aren't going to clean this kind of thing up themselves if it's going to have an effect on the amount of money that they're making. And that's where we get into the farm bill, which is really pretty hard to talk about because it's so complicated and because Congress is so completely blocked on doing anything about it right now. But if it were up to me, I would completely overhaul the farm bill and try to connect the policies that we have on farming to something that promoted health and the environment a little bit better. Well, and that's really where I think some of the, you know, faith in our government, in the FDA and and other government agencies begins to falter on the part of most Americans when they see some of the... um, some of the disconnect between farming as a business and all of the policy that, you know, surrounds protecting the business aspect uh, versus farming as public health <laughs> and all of the issues around protecting our health. For instance, you know, while the government may have a role in terms of, you know, pollution from these operations that spills over into other people's property, other people's water. What about the products that they sell? For instance, you know, uh, selling the the flesh of sick animals is part of our meat industry. Um, you know, we've got Well, it this... isn't supposed to be. <laughs> well, it, go on. You, 
talk yeah, about Yeah, it's not supposed to be. We have laws that cover these things. So the issue is how what is how are the laws enforced and who makes sure that the laws are enforced? And we know that there are meat producers who do a beautiful job of making sure that their meat is clean and meets the highest possible standards, and there are other places that don't. And that's why you need laws. Well, and let me ask you this, Miriam, because this has been something that's been troubling me for the last few months. We've got this virus going around our pork industry that's affecting the piglets terribly. And the the statements that keep coming out in mainstream media that I'm seeing is that this virus poses no threats to humans, so don't worry about it. While, on the other hand, it is very harmful to the piglets, and it's actually been the, you know, the cause of, of extreme uh, mortality rates amongst the piglets in the pork industry. My gut tells me, I mean, just pure intuition, that it, it can't be healthy for humans to consume the flesh of sick animals, and yet we're being told by the FDA, don't worry about it. What's your thought on that? And make sure your food is cooked. Really well, really well. Um, you know, I mean, cooking solves lots and lots of problems. You have to be really careful handling meat from animals that are sick, um, with some kind of viral disease because you, you know, the swine flu, for example, is believed to be the basis of a lot of human, uh, flu conditions if it mutates appropriately. I don't think sick animals are a good idea. Uh, farmers don't want sick animals, um, but if you're in a really large pig-producing operation, if one animal gets sick, they're all going to get sick. Uh, and that's why, you know, something less concentrated might be healthier for animals, people, and the planet. Uh, but it's very hard when these companies are producing food so efficiently for them to think about ways that might reduce the profits that they're making from it, particularly in low-margin industries like food. Mm -hmm. Um, But we could do this a lot better than we're currently doing, and we know how to do it better, and that's where uh, a farm policy that put in some incentives for doing it better would be a really good thing. Well, and you know, food safety in general is such a huge topic, and it really has been bubbling to the top of of everyday people's consciousness and awareness uh, in recent years. I remember the first time that I heard about an E. coli outbreak affecting people who had eaten um, hamburgers from a certain fast food restaurant. And it was in 1992. I was stationed, I was in the Navy, I was stationed down in San Diego. And I heard about it because I was in the emergency room suffering from the after effects of eating one of those hamburgers. And for a long time, that's people thought, well, if there are microbes in our food, just char the meat and that'll take care of it. You know, just cook it well. But in recent years, we've seen some of these microbial outbreaks in vegetables and vegetables that we eat raw, sometimes that we don't cook. So talk to us about how our food production system has contributed to this phenomenon, because this seems a a little bit more recent than some of the other um, food safety issues we were talking about in the 90s. Well, it is recent, and it's recent for a couple of reasons. One is that it affects vegetables, which it never used to. It was always animal wastes that caused the problem. It's still animal wastes that caused the problem, but now the animal wastes have gotten onto the vegetables somehow or other, either by human transmission or water transmission or some other way. Um, And so that's one thing. The other is that the, the... 
bacteria that are responsible for the illnesses have become much more lethal. So we never used to have widespread problems with things like these unusual forms of E. coli or salmonella or listeria that are causing so much problem now. And this has to do with not having preventive controls in farm production. Now, the FDA's new Food Safety Modernization Act rules require farms to introduce safety controls, but those haven't been implemented yet in a lot of places. Um, if they are, then the problem ought to decrease, and certainly the problems in packing plants have gone down quite a lot since packing plants for vegetables, for example, have cleaned up their act and have introduced preventive controls that are stopping the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, in your book, you have a couple of chapters that are devoted to food production and why food production matters. One of the issues that you raised is hunger. Talk to us about how food production and hunger are linked. Well, if you don't, everybody thinks that the hunger problem, particularly internationally, has to do with um, inadequate food production or inadequate um, food aid coming from developed countries. But it's much more complicated than that. It really has to do with uh, inequitable distribution of resources in general. If people have enough money, they usually can get enough to eat unless they're in the middle of some kind of war or conflict situation or disaster situation. But, you know, the billion people in the world that are said not to have enough to eat on a daily basis uh, are in that situation because they don't have enough money to buy food or they don't have land on which to grow food. So these are enormously complicated, again, political issues that have everything to do with politics um, and much less to do with the kinds of very close um, situations where you say, well, if people don't have enough food, we'll just give them food. It's much more complicated than that. How do you mean that it's political? I mean, if somebody lives out in the middle of a desert region, well, they just don't have, you know, you can't grow food in sand. So we get that. But how, how is that political? Well, it's political in the sense that if they have money, they can get in their car and drive to some place where they can buy food. If they don't have money, they can't. Um, and if they're in the United States and poor, never mind internationally, if they're in the United States and poor, then they're dependent on on the government's food stamp program, now called STAMP, now called SNAP, um, where they need to uh, pick up their electronic benefits every month and use those benefits to buy food. But those benefits never last more than two or three weeks for, Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not very generous. And Congress is cutting them. Mm -hmm. And people are going to be getting 30% less benefits starting very soon. Oh, boy. And then you see the other side of the coin, and, and that is, you know, all of these articles talking about somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of the food that's purchased in the U.S. is wasted. And that's a travesty. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have much more with Marion Nussel and her new book, Eat, Drink, Vote, an illustrated guide to food politics. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News. 
opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could join us. If you're just tuning in, you can check out our guest's website at Marion Nessel. Is it .com? It is. Food Politics and foodpolitics.com as well. She's got a great blog. She's got all kinds of great articles and information, but you can also find out information about her new book, which is called Eat, Drink, Vote, an illustrated guide to food politics. And it's fun. I mean, this, the issues are serious, but the book is fun to read. It's filled with some of the, some cartoons from some of the most famous and, uh, awarded, uh, cartoonists in the country. And it, it, you just can't put it down. It's really fun to read while you're learning about some very serious issues. One of the chapters in your book, Marion, is about food production and obesity. And I'd love for you to share your insights on this topic with our listeners and give us your thoughts on what always becomes a very emotional question. Should the government intervene in obesity issues in Well, America? the government is already intervening. So uh, in, in in one way, the government is deeply, deeply involved in the kind of food system that we have now. Um, and changing it to promote a healthier lifestyle would be a tweaking. It would not be a fundamental change. But let me explain the way I explain what happened with obesity, and this goes back to agricultural policy in the 1970s when the government started paying farmers to grow more food, not less. 
and our farmers are very good at responding to incentives, and they produced a lot more food, and the number of calories available in the food supply went from about 3,200 a day per person, and that's men, women, little tiny babies, to about 3,900 per day, which is what it is now. Um, and the calories in the food supply went up exactly in parallel with rising rates of obesity, I think, because food companies had to figure out how to sell their products in an increasingly competitive food environment. It's always been competitive, but then it got really incompetitive. So food companies invented a whole lot of ways to market foods that were new and that started in the 1980s. Larger portions is the most obvious one. Um, I think it's a sufficient explanation for why people started to gain weight. Larger portions have more calories. Um, I wish if I had one thing to teach everybody, it would be that. It's not intuitively obvious. But larger mm-hmm. portions have more calories. Um, they also started, it was cheaper to eat in out, so fast food places proliferated. Food went everywhere. Food appeared in uh, clothing stores, business supply stores, drug stores. Drug stores in New York now look like they're grocery stores. Uh, and with food everywhere, vending machines everywhere, um, it became socially acceptable for people to eat all day long, uh, all night long, and to eat in very, very large portions. And that social change was enough to encourage people to put on weight. Let's talk about this in the context of feeding kids. My own kids are now in high school and college, so they're starting to make more and more food choices on their own. And there's so much food marketing directed at kids these days, and most of it is not coming from people who grow kale and broccoli. So it's tough Uh, for them to compete. (laughs) What are your thoughts on marketing food to kids and and the government's role in, in that whole arena? Well, it's an enormous issue, and I don't have small children anymore, or even high school children for that matter, but when my kids were little, uh, we didn't have the kind of, I, they were not subjected to the kind of food marketing that there is now. Breakfast cereals, maybe, but beyond that, really nothing like what they're seeing now. Um, it was perfectly easy to take them to McDonald's once a year on their birthday. Um, <laughs> there was never any question of going every day. There was no McDonald's in schools, no McDonald's in hospitals. There was not a McDonald's on every single corner. Um, the the and my friends who have two year olds say that. They don't have television. They don't take their kids to these places, and their kids can recognize uh, highly advertised food brands, Mm -hmm. McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, and so forth. They have very high recognition of these brands because the companies are marketing to them Mm -hmm. um, in ways often that slip below parental radar. You just don't notice it because a lot of it isn't obvious. Kids watch lots of uh, advertisements on TV and are unable to tell the difference between advertising and real content. So they just sop it up um, and like sponge, they just sponge it up. Um, And so there's been a lot of effort to try to get food companies not to market to children under the age of 12, but I don't know how you would make that distinction. That would be really hard to do. And a lot of marketing has gone online. 
it's on cell phones or it's on um, some kind of it's on computers. It's on it's in places where parents just don't see it. Pretty mm-hmm. hard to monitor what your kids are doing, mm-hmm. and the um, and they know that, and the food companies know that, and even though they're under all enormous pressure not to market to children, voluntarily they have been unable to stop because if they don't market to children, the kids don't buy their products or the kids don't ask their parents to buy their products. Kids don't have a lot of money themselves, but they have a lot of power in the family to, introduce, to, in, induce, to influence what the family eats. And the purpose of marketing is to get kids to recognize brands, pester their parents, and to believe that the marketed foods are what they are supposed to be eating. Mm-hmm. Foods made just for them. This is kids' food. It's what mm-hmm. kids are supposed to eat. Um, so I think all of that is quite insidious. They're not voluntarily going to stop it. The only way to stop it is to regulate it. And to date, the government has been unable to do that. The political pressures against it are just too great. Well, and talking about another political issue that deals with feeding kids, you know, you can't really have a discussion about kids and nutrition and and politics without talking about school lunch programs. And now this is not a scientific observation, but my gut tells me that if you polled kids and their parents, you know, across the country, that the approval rating for their local school lunch program would probably be about as low as Congress's approval rating, abysmally low. And it's been that way for decades. Why is it so difficult for us to get school lunch programs that are healthy, that taste good, and are cost-effective? What are the forces, the political forces, working against that vision? Well, I actually think these are more personal than, well, the big one is money. The big political issue is money. Schools often don't have enough money to do what they'd really like to do. And there's a long history of taking kitchens out of schools so that the food isn't cooked there um, and is brought in. There's a long history about this. But I actually think the big problem in schools is personal. Um, I have been in schools where the kids ate the food, liked the food, um, were really involved in the food, wanted to learn how to cook, wanted to know where the food came from, or were totally engaged with the school meals as part of their teaching and learning activity. And that's because the adults in the school were really passionate about it. Um, and I'm not just talking about private schools. I've been in public schools that are just like that. Um, I can walk into a school and tell in a second what the level of adult involvement is by looking to see whether the kids are eating the food. Mm-hmm. If the kids are eating the food, the adults are involved. It's mm-hmm. just as simple as that. So we have school rules, we have school food rules from the Department of Agriculture, and the Department of Agriculture, just read it this morning, has just done a video showing um, widespread acceptance of the new school rules in most schools in the country. They're claiming 80% acceptance rate. So there are a few places where the kids are up in arms about the new school rules that are making foods healthier. And I think that in those places, there probably are adults who are really annoyed Mm -hmm. about having to change the way they've been doing things. They don't like government interference, and they don't really care about kids' health. Well, um, I mean, but, hey, when pizza counts as a vegetable, so not a go. lot of kids, yeah, not a lot of kids would argue with that, but a lot of moms would. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And oh, that is, well, that's the cartoon that's on the cover of the book. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it shows pizza as a vegetable. It shows congressional idea of a vegetable, and it's a slice of pizza. And I picked that cartoon because it's a really easy one. It doesn't have a caption, um, and the colors match the colors of the of the cover. Um, but I also thought it it explained in one cartoon why something like school lunch was so political, because in this case. The purveyors of pizza to the school lunch program went to Congress and complained that if uh, the rules changed, they wouldn't would no longer be able to count what they had on pizza as a vegetable serving, and it would be outside the vegetables, and schools wouldn't be able to use as much of it. And they got Congress to pass a law as part of a spending bill that forbade they that absolutely forbade the department of agriculture for instituting its new healthier school food rule for pizza. Well, and i think that's kind of demoralizing for everyday americans to see that kind of a decision come down oh, and to see that disgusting. kind of influence because how do you fight that as an everyday american i mean obviously you can pack your kids lunch i mean that's what i do um but still i mean when that kind of you know, when that kind of an occurrence comes down from Congress, it's just like, wow, are you kidding me? And and what can everyday citizens possibly do? I mean, what can we do to be involved in decisions like that? Well, if you've got kids, I mean, again, it's personal. If you've got kids in school, you go to school and try to work with the school to improve the school meals. That's what you do. And that has been enormously successful in many, many, many places. I mean, you talk about one person being able to make a difference. One person can make a difference in a school if you're lucky enough to have uh, people involved in the school, the principal, the school food service director, and some of the personnel who are interested in making these kinds of changes. What the Department of Agriculture's rules have done is to give schools that want to do a good job um, the mandate to do it, and they're doing it mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, and you just know that whenever you see this big outcry against how kids aren't getting enough to eat in school lunches, that there are adults there who are allowing that or Absolutely. encouraging that and not trying to discourage it. Because if you go into a school that has a good school program, a good, good school lunch program, and I have been in many it just brings tears to your eyes. It's so lovely. The food yep. is good. The kids are eating it. They come in. They eat their lunch. They go back to class. End of story. Yep. Just, and and the learning easy. environment is better because it's of it. Far better. Far better learning environment and a far healthier environment all the way around. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it's setting a good example for kids and opening up the possibilities of having discussions about the food system in ways that are thoughtful and add to kids' learning. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have much more with Marion and her new book. Check it out, Eat, Drink, Vote, an Illustrated Guide to Food Politics. We'll be right back, folks. More Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. World. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you just happen to be join, joining us, our guest today is Marion Nessel. She's a world-renowned uh, food expert, and we're so excited to have her on. But she's got a brand-new book out that I'd really like for you to take a look at. It's called Eat, Drink, Vote, an illustrated guide to food politics. And you can find it on Amazon. You can find it on her website, MarionNessel.com. You can find it on FoodPolitics.com. Check it out. You won't be sorry. I actually was telling Marion during the commercial break that I learned something new about our food system that I had no idea was going on. Uh, from her book, I learned that the offspring of cloned animals are in our food system without any labeling. That was a shocker to me. Um, and I, I learned that from Marion's book. And I'm sure that we'll all take away something new and valuable um, as we progress in our food education, nutrition education, if we pick up Marion's book. In your chapter called Fixing the Food System, Marion, you raised several really interesting points that I'd like for you to share with our listeners. Um, amongst these points were things like banning trans fats, posting calories, taxing junk food, and capping soda sizes. I'd love to give you some time to just talk about those issues with our listeners. Sure. Which one do you want to start with? Let's talk about banning trans fats. Oh, well, that's a um, heart disease prevention measure, not an obesity prevention measure, because trans fats have the same number of calories as everything that replaces them. But I thought trans fats was a no-brainer because they're artificial, they're not good for you, and they're easily replaced by healthier fats. And in places where they've been banned, nobody even noticed. They don't taste different. There's no taste difference. There's no texture difference. There's no difference. Uh, there are lots of ways of replacing them. And the trans fat ban in New York City went through with remarkably little controversy. Uh, the health department spent a year trying to get people to do it voluntarily. When that didn't work, um, they instituted the ban. But the reason it didn't work was not because people, restaurant owners were hostile to the idea. They just didn't know what trans fats were. <laughs> 
Interesting. It, what about- I mean, it was really a question of ignorance more than anything else. So once they had to do it, they easily found substitutes. Mm-hmm. What about posting calories? Talk about that. Well, the, here's politics again. New York City started a, a calorie labeling initiative in 2008, um, and the calorie labels went up on fast food places in New York City, and the world did not come to an end. And for people, you know, for people who look at the calorie information, people like me, I have to say, uh, it was pretty revelatory. I had no idea there were the, that number of calories in a lot of the foods that I was, you know, just sort of picking up on the fly. Muffins and bagels, for example, um, mm-hmm. turn out to be have probably two or three times the number of calories than I thought they had. Um, and then lots of other places started doing it. And then because the rules were different in different places, the National Restaurant Association stopped fighting it and went to the government and said, we need a national law. And when um, President Obama signed the uh, Health Care Reform Act in 2010, there was a section in it that uh, mandated calorie labeling for to go national. That was in 2010, and the FDA has still not come out with the rules. That's <laughs> politics for you. Yeah. They're, being, they're being held up. Well, and everybody's, you know, says, oh, hey, transparency, you know, it's the buzzword. We want transparency in government. We want transparency in corporate America and SEC filings. What about transparency with something that all of us deal with every day, food? It seems like part and parcel with this transparency movement that we all supposedly are in favor of. Um, but like you said, politics holds it up. You know, here's a, a really, you know, if you want to bring people out into the streets, talk about taxing junk food. Talk to us about what your thoughts are on that, Marianne. Well, there's a lot. It's very difficult to decide where the taxes are going to go because once you get past sodas, it's a slippery slope. Sodas mm-hmm. are a really convenient target for a lot of these kinds of initiatives because they're sugar water and nothing, <laughs> or high fructose corn syrup water and nothing else. They have no redeeming nutritional value at all. Um, the Center for Science and the Public Interest calls them liquid candy. And if you think about kids drinking sodas all day long and substitute the idea that they're eating candy all day long. You can kind of see what's wrong with the whole soda business. An occasional soda is fine, but all day long and a substitute for water, not at all. Um, So they're a convenient target and a lot of efforts are focused on them. Once you go beyond sodas into things like juices, uh, hamburgers, french fries, or whatever, you're into a much, much more complicated nutritional picture because those foods have nutrients right. along with their calories, whereas sodas don't. So I favor taxes on sodas. I think it would be a really good idea. Lots of places are looking at this. Uh, there's an initiative in Mexico now, which has the highest rates of obesity in the world, to try to tax sodas, in an, and they drink a lot of soda in Mexico, to try to uh, reduce the rate of soda drinking. Those messages are getting out in the United States, and sales of full-sugar sodas are way down. Um, but And Michelle Obama's new Drink Up campaign is in a subtle way designed to deal with that issue. 
you know, there, there are a lot of people out there that feel like, and, and, and I'm kind of on the fence about this because it, it is sort of a personal issue, but a lot of people feel like the market should decide things like this, not government regulation. The idea is you educate people, let them make their own choices, and if they choose more healthy foods, then the food industry is going to have to respond by providing more healthy foods in order to stay in business. What's wrong with that way of thinking? Well, I, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, it, it's our standard market economy argument. It just omits a couple of key factors, which is that these aren't personal decisions. These are societal decisions because society picks up the health care costs uh, of people who develop type 2 diabetes or something. Nobody could afford to pay for treatment of type 2 diabetes on their own. Um, our social and whatever we have in a healthcare system picks up a big chunk of those costs. So it's a taxpayer-supported expense, a social expense. Um, the education, I wish it worked, and the example that I use to show why education doesn't work is large portions. If you give just about anybody a large portion of food, that person, even me, will eat more calories from that food. And if you say, how much of that food did you eat and how many calories did you eat from that food, the underestimations will be much, much greater than from smaller portions. There's now tons of research that shows this. Mm-hmm. Um, so education isn't enough. You have to provide a, a food environment that supports knowledge in order to help people make more healthful choices. Um, and I think we need a combination of a healthier food environment, government regulation, and enormous public pressure on food companies to change the situation. Well, I appreciate you coming on and and talking us through these issues, Mary. It was great having you on Go Green Radio. I encourage all of our listeners to get out and find her book on her website, MarianNessel.com or FoodPolitics.com. The book is Eat, Drink, Vote. You're going to love it. The cartoons are funny and they're very enlightening. And her comments, of course, are, uh, are very, very educational. You're going to feel different about the way that you look at food after reading the book. Thank you for joining us, Marian. And thank you to our listeners for for joining us. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.